Uh, welcome everybody uh, and thank you very much for joining us. I hope that you've all been keeping um, nice and safe and well and especially those of us in the UK, I hope the storm hasn't um, caused you any damage or anything like that. So it's great to see so many alumni, uh, students, fellow staff members and friends joining us tonight for what promises to be um, a really interesting evening of discussion. So my name is Hayley Jane Sims. I work here at the university within the alumni communications team. I uh, co-host our alumni podcast um, and I'm also a writer. I've written lots about being a gay woman, particularly being uh, a gay woman in Manchester. We're really pleased to say that tonight's event is going to be recorded as a live podcast. So if you want, you can listen back um, or you can spread the word and anyone that can't make it tonight, uh, you'll be able to listen to this discussion through our Your Manchester Stories podcast, which I'll talk about at the end as well. Uh, so the university has marked LGBT History Month every year since 2010 with a variety of events, awareness raising activities and calls to action to mark the contribution and importance of this community, not only to our history, but to our present and future activities. And this year, the theme of the month is politics in art. And to discuss this, we are joined by a very distinguished panel of speakers who I will now introduce. Rob Cookson has over 20 years experience of working in the voluntary and community sector. In his current role as Deputy Chief Executive for the LGBT Foundation, Rob is the charity's lead for a range of partnership initiatives, including LGBT Foundation's Training Academy, Pride in Practice and Sexual Health. Rob is passionate about equality and supporting LGBTQ plus people. Rob lives in Stretford with his husband and very naughty Jack Russell, Ruby. Dominic Bilton is the student and youth engagement producer at The Whitworth, where he is also producer of Queering The Whitworth. Dominic is also a PhD researcher in the School of Fine Art, History of Art and Cultural Studies at the University of Leeds, where his research is focused on LGBTQ engagement within museums. Dominic is also co-lead of the Queer British Art Research Group, a subgroup of the British Art Network funded by Tate and the Paul Mellon Centre for British Art. Dr. Monica Pearl is Senior Lecturer in 20th Century American Literature at the University of Manchester. She's published extensively on AIDS representation and was a member of ACT UP New York, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. And last but not least, Lynn Sutcliffe is the Managing Director of Mighty Productions. In her youth, Lynn was very active with the nonviolent direct action group Outrage. She was also a founding member of the London chapter of the Lesbian Avengers. She wrote, there must be 50 ways to tell your mother, first a cabaret, then a popular book, now MD of an independent television company, LGBTQI plus portrayal on our screens remains absolutely fundamental to her work. She's particularly fond of costume jewellery, piano bars, pub quizzes and cats. She lives with her wife and their three children in South East London, and she's quite fond of them too. So thank you very much to all our panellists for joining us tonight. We are going to ask the panel about the importance of using art, performance and writing to discover and rediscover LGBT plus history through these mediums. So I've got a few questions for the panel to get started. And then after this, we're going to invite you to put your questions to the panel through the chat facility on Zoom, which you can find sort of at the bottom there. We're going to suggest that for your optimal viewing, you switch to speaker view. And I think it's about time we got started. So I'm going to ask uh, a question to each of the panelists, first of all. So, uh, Rob, if I can turn to you first, what is the LGBT Foundation's approach to activism through the arts and in the community at large? Yeah, thank you for the question and thank you for inviting me tonight with such a brilliant panel. Um, I want to start really by saying a thank you to one of my colleagues, Barry Priest, who's the project manager for the Greater Manchester LGBTQ Plus Arts and Cultural Network. So that's one of the things that the LGBT Foundation does is actually bring um, all the brilliant creativity together, really, in terms of Greater Manchester, the different um, you know charities and, and, and individuals that are working around culture and LGBTQ Plus 
culture and art. Um, and one of the things that um, Barry and, and all those organisations have done recently is held a conference which was called Queer Joy and Radical Acts. And I think actually that that sort of sums up LGBT Foundation's position quite well, really, in terms of what you know what we see as the importance of of, of activism um, and the importance of, of art in activism. Um, I think one of the things we've tried to do is you know give people an opportunity to showcase their talents. Um, Monica was saying before how um, on the, on our prep talk before the before the start of the panel, uh, Monica was sharing how. You know that 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 Monica had actually led a, um, a a reading group for over ten years at the LGBT Foundation, um, and I thought that was a, a you know a fantastic example of you know someone's skills and talents like Monica actually feeding that that back into the community. Um, so we try and showcase talent. Um, we've we've done exhibitions in the past at our community space, giving people a space to kind of like share the the the, the work that they're doing, um, and I think. One of the things that I would probably finish on in terms of protest is that as an organisation, as a charity, what we try and do is, um, you know, encourage protest to flourish, really, but but protest in different ways. So I think that, you know, we we absolutely get the importance of, um, you know, visibility in protest and, and art in protest. Um, we also try and work with communities in terms of, you know, we've done campaigns in the past where we've encouraged people to write to their MPs, for example, or lobby their local councillors about, um, you know, particular issues of the day. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think art is a really, really important part of activism. I think it's often one of the ways in which um, we can make sure that our community is not silent. Um, and I think it's, it's really, really powerful. I'm really looking forward to kind of everyone's contributions and the, and the panel's discussion today as well. Thanks, Rob. Um, I have to say I've attended um, quite a few events at the LGBT Foundation um, through the years, and it's just such a wonderful place and sort of safe space for sort of the community to to access. It's um, it, it does brilliant work. Um, Dominic, if I can turn to you, um, you're working on a project called Queering the Whitworth, um, looking at the gallery's collection through a queer perspective. Is general art history study missing a section celebrating queer art? In mainstream art history, perhaps. However, um, with regards to where I studied at Liverpool uh, John Moore University, I was thoroughly encouraged to pursue uh, queer art history within my second year. Um, and I think if you have the right support around you to be able to do that, then you can you can certainly uh, you can certainly uh, expand your knowledge on that and really like engage with that. If you have those lecturers around you, um, and at John Moore's, I really did. Can I just say thank you for inviting me also, and thank you for everybody else. And uh, um, and uh, Rob, just on on your comment, just while I think, sorry, I'm a bit scattered. But we're working with the uh, in partnership with the LGBT Foundation at the moment through Barry Priest and Ibtisam um, on a project that we're working at at the moment called Undefining Queer. So we really appreciate that, and and the wellbeing team are also working with us on that project. So just just thought I'd say that before I forget. <laughs> really appreciate that, yeah, and and uh, with Barry Priest as well. Um, through Barry Priest. Um, but yes, no, so I was never, um, I personally was never on a back foot with regards to uh, queer art history or, or, or celebrating queer art history. I think in the mainstream, it's normative, you know, the institution is normative. Um, so queer art history is always going to be on the back foot. But I think now, with regards to activism, this is where our time now is to say, we need more celebration of this within within our courses um, and more lecturers to be behind us to be able to do that as well. I think that if I hadn't have started to navigate that perhaps myself within the second year, perhaps that wouldn't have been something that was on 
my lecturer's syllabus to be able to teach us. But because I wanted to pursue that, then that became an option available to me. Um, but of course, like different institutions, you know, around the country specialise, have lecturers that specialise in different things. So I was in Liverpool and Della Robbia Pottery and the Pre-Raphaelites with regards to the institutions that were there, but what their speciality was. Um, and so, you know, there wasn't, in my experience, too much, you know, wiggle room to be able to queer Della Robbia Pottery, for example. Um, but there was within what Charlotte Keenan was doing, for example, at the Walker Art Gallery with regards to Pride and Prejudice projects and things like that. So navigating your way through um, normative institutions to be able to celebrate queer art history, if you've got those supportive lecturers around you, is, is something that you're able to do, I think. In terms of the Queer and the Whitworth um, exhibition, is, is there significance in use of the word queer? Oh yeah, very much so. I mean, when when we do social media posts, for example, there's always some sort of clapback with regards to the use of the word queer as a very diverse, you know, as a very uh, diversive term. Um, and we're using it because of that diverse, you know, because of the fact that it is a term which is troubling and it does disrupt and it does challenge normativity. And and you know, if we if we're if we're speaking about Judas Butler and the term queer, you know, then that's what it's it's meant to do. Queerness is meant to do that. And there's a reason why we're using that within the gallery to be able to disrupt the normativity that the Whitworth has, like for, for decades, you know, if not centuries since its foundation, you know. Um, so we're specifically using that and we're using it within many different terms, within many different titles, project titles within the gallery at the moment. So Queering the Whitworth is the overall museological approach that we're taking to queer practice within the gallery. And then a, a project that we're working on with the LGBT Foundation at the moment. And uh, my, my uh, partner on the project, Imogen Holmes Rowe, who's in, who's in the chat at the moment. Uh, we've, we, we are using undefining queer to be able to, to disrupt that term and to be able to start to say, well, actually queer isn't something that we can pin down, but we need to pin it down to make it visible. And then we're opening that and challenging people to come and challenge us with that with those terms and and, and that word. And we're we're open and we're wanting that to, to people to do that. That's what that, this project is about. It's about language and and yeah, having that happen within the gallery. Thanks very much. Uh, sort of leads us nicely on to um, Monica. If I could turn to you, um, one of your specialties is representations of gay and lesbian writing and visual representation. Do you think there's there's more that can be done to sort of normalise or usualise LGBT plus literature? Well, I would say that we're already doing plenty to normalise and usualise LGBT representation in arts and literature. I would pick up from where Dominic was going with the idea of queer which is really a very disruptive idea in its origins. I mean, the word queer is increasingly being used as an umbrella term to refer to the entire list of um, uh, uh, sort of sexual and, gen and gender degenerates. And now we're um, using that um, umbrella term, but in fact, queer, um, since the advent of Queer Nation, which was a, um, an action group that splintered off of ACT UP at the same time that Lesbian Avengers did in, in New York, um, is a word that was reclaimed from the time it was a slur to unsettle, to disrupt, to unweave. And it is true that there is more and more mainstream representation of LGBTQ plus um, uh, people and acts and pathways, but I want to remember the word queer as one that is um, not easily definable, that is not easily representable. And in fact, um, you know, we're here really within the month of the 30 year anniversary of the uh, concept of new queer cinema that B. Ruby Rich uh, named um, in late January, 1992. And that was a cinema of um, uh, uh, um, death and criminality and toxicity. And it looked like a bad move for the gays to suddenly have representation in film that didn't represent us very nicely 
But in fact, coming on the um, uh, on the edge of the AIDS crisis and coming at a time when there was a real political resistance, that cinema was something that we, um, well, that in, in some ways it represented better what it felt like to be queer at that time. Um, it's it's really interesting this sort of the concept of sort of reclaiming sort of words and things like that. Hopefully we'll um, touch on more as as we uh, go through the evening. Um, but Lynn, from your perspective, because you work in in a slightly different area within within television, mm. you work at an independent television company within factual entertainment like game shows and quizzes. So you've quite a different sort of perspective to come from here. Um, how can representations on television sort of better sort of support the sort of LGBTQI um, community? And where do you think in the business is the greatest need for this? Well, I think it's absolutely fundamental. We, I suppose, making telly are there in people's living rooms, aren't we? We're, we're able to reach out to people who aren't being taken to or taking themselves to amazing galleries or able to see the quiz cinema or, you know, because I think our first realisation for all of us about uh, queerness, about, um, I mean, it's 30 years ago since we were debating the use of the word queer and outrage. And we all had those queer as fuck t-shirts made to kind of stir up that, that debate. And we're still, we're still talking about it 30 years on. But, um, you know, the first time most of us were aware of people we thought were like us, different, didn't fit in, were, were queer, were different. It's on the telly, you know. Um, and I think what's what's really interesting is, you know, as there's a power obviously in RuPaul's Drag Race, but there's also a power in somebody on a game show saying, if I win this thousand pounds, I'm taking, you know, a woman saying taking my wife on honeymoon that visibility that little kind of ching of that being a really normal thing that people can see and hear in their living rooms I think it's incredibly powerful and I've had to really push all the time at my casting to try and make it as diverse as I can in every form everything I do and it it's it takes time but I, I've just I've put the time and resources into it because I think it's absolutely key is, is that something that you get a, a, a pushback from or is it just something that doesn't occur to people to look out to, to do that? I think it's something that is massively on the up lately. I've been trying to do it for a while and if people were like, oh, casting's really, really out there, isn't it? Um, and now I think that's becoming much more of an industry standard, you know, um, and it's kind of more what people are expecting which is exactly as it should be. You know, yeah. we, we should all be there reflecting you know, the nation back to themselves constantly. On their yeah, it is that thing of you, you sort of, you, you do want to see yourself reflected in all sort of parts of society. And I know from a personal experience, like, you know, I grew up not that, you know, not that long ago, but there wasn't necessarily representation for me to look at and see other lesbians in the world around me um, and all sorts of different lesbians yeah shapes sizes colors ages classes you know a whole lot yeah yeah absolutely um now we're going to move on to sort of a question for the whole panel um to to answer um monica i'm going to come to you first um how do politics and art influence and shape each other in enhancing the LGBT plus experience? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and it's an important one. Um, it can seem as though uh, politics and activism, which is the version of politics I'm thinking of here, and arts don't necessarily go together. Um, however, they are absolutely um, integrated and integral to each other. The arts are especially the kind of queer arts that disrupt the not just the normative representations that we're talking about, but even sort of genre, like where it's not um, clear what's going on, where it's not um, ending in a 
uh, conventionally satisfying way um, where we don't even know um, what the sexuality of someone or some people are, um, that can also give people ideas, right? And that's political in the sense that the art that is usually consolidating of our experiences and our identity can open, open those things up and make it more um, unclear where what our direction is in life and make us more dissatisfied with life, which is the root of activism, because that means we're going to fight for change and fight for something different and not just the conventional. There's another aspect of uh, queer art that is so important to um, community and activism, and that is literally the kind of um, fellow feeling and solidarity that you get from being in, say, a live audience of performance art that is a bit wacky, uh, very queer, unexpected, and everyone in the room is experiencing that together. It happens in a different way when it's, um, say, on television or in the cinema, or even a book that lots of people are reading and talking about, but it's another version of the same thing. And we all want our comforts. We want the things that make sense and fit into um, the genres we recognize, but the real way for change and agitation is when it doesn't meet our expectations in a sometimes disturbing way, but eye-opening way. I can see uh, Lynn was, was, was nodding, nodding furiously there. Would you like to uh, answer next? Well, I was just thinking about how really um, activism is a really kind of communal experience. It, it brings people together. And I think a lot of people that were doing activism, you know, in the early days of ACT UP, in the early days of Outrage, in the early days of Avengers, that was because they had found a communal experience. They had found a common anger, a common outrage and a desire to sit together. And it gave people a really communal experience that perhaps had been lacking if they felt slightly displaced from the kind of common community. Um, and I think, I'm sure you'd agree more because there's a real kind of overlap between kind of creative activism and theater. But the line is, is, is really fine. Some of the demonstrations we used to do were really theatrical. Yeah. You know, we made you know we made images of homophobia and we dressed up as high priestesses and we threw them into the river and you know what I mean we we were trying to think of creative visual ways to make people you know realize the power of what we do. It's yeah, exactly. Uh, Dominic, I think we're still. I think activism is still what we're doing, and I think that Imogen and Ed agree with me here, my my uh, project partner on on uh, undefining queer, is that um, this form of activism is still what's happening within our creative practice because within uh, institutions, queering is still a form of activism, and I think it, it you know that that politics really enhances LGBT experience. So, for example, like the Whitworth wouldn't be a place where you'd think that you'd see queer art on display. At the moment, we've got an eight intervention by um by general idea um we've opened up the display of undefining queer which is really a questioning as well the bloomsbury set using um black men to sexualize them you know and and uh, this is what we're doing we're really using it as we're using art as a form of activism to be able to enhance and discuss these works that we have within our collection um and so i i, I think that you know politically we're still activism is still something that's really happening now and, and everything that I do is a form of activism and I think Imogen would, would agree that it is a form of activism um so yeah I think so it's really important and, and that's what we're doing within the Whitworth to so do come and see the exhibition <laughs> or the display of works <laughs> uh Rob would you like to come in yeah I was just going to share a story about how I went to see the um Derek Jarman exhibition a few weeks ago and you know I think that's a good example of like the power of how kind of activism and politics and you know the, the vibrancy of our communities kind of like come together and art comes together um and uh actually the the kind of the experience of the audience as well because when i went to the derek jarman exhibition there's there's you know there's all the images there's a video playing there's the music playing um and really interesting to see how people were engaging with that that sort of educational piece um and you know i i thought it was quite inspiring how the words that were thrown at us by the press in the 80s um, you know really damaging really negative words uh Derek Jarman took them 
you know, plastered these boards with all these newspapers, with all these disgusting words on them, and then painted all over them. Something really, really powerful with that. And I think that, um, I guess the, I guess there's a historical aspect to this, isn't there, that actually pieces of art live on, don't they? You know, activism lives on. And um, you know whether it's Derek Jarman or other, or someone someone else. Actually, there's there's a lot. You know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, don't we? There's a there's a the art and activism sort of go hand in hand, really. Derek Jarman bought um, Outrage, their first fax machine. All right, okay. That's that's a that's a bit of living living history there. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Rob, if I can. Uh, stay with you for for uh, another minute um to ask you a question i'm gonna ask all the panel this um but what is the most important piece of art music or literature that shapes your experience of being lgbtq plus well my husband might listen back to this on the podcast so there's only one answer that i can give <laughs> and that's you know picture the scene it's april 14 uh, 2018 and we're, we're just about to walk into the uh, down the aisle in, in Manchester Registry Office um, and there's a song called The Competition um, and it's produced by the Pet Shop Boys um, my uh, husband in particular actually is like a massive fan of the Pet Shop Boys you know if anyone comes to our house then if there's a song playing nine times out of ten it's a Pet Shop Boys song um, and so personally you know, I'm talking from a personal point of view, but personally, that's the song that really resonates because, you know, it's the song that we got married to. And actually, you know, I, I work for an organisation that I can remember a few years ago was having a big campaign with other uh, organisations and activists about, you know, campaigning for equal marriage. Um, and I think that, so, so it's sort of, for me personally, it reminds me of my wedding, but also it, 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 it kind of, reminds me about the fight that we've, we've been through and still going through, you know, as a community. Um, and I think particularly at the, the moment, if you, if you see the um, just atrocious comments that trans and non-binary communities are getting, the relentless attacks that trans and non-binary communities are getting, you know, daily, hourly, on social media, in the press, um, you know, not getting support from some of our institutions that we should get, um, I, I think that, um, you know, music's really powerful, but, that you know, it's really important that actually, you know, the fight goes on, doesn't it? A lot, a lot of the, although we've won a lot of rights as a community, actually culturally, there's still massive, massive challenges that we need to, we need to go through. Yeah, definitely. There is, um, um, you know, they say something about there's there's lots of battles but there's also sort of the war and you know particularly you know sort of our, our trans community sort of need need us all really to to be to be with them right now um dominic if i can move to you what's the most important piece of art music or literature that shapes your experience of being lgbtq plus um when I was doing my undergrad, I read a lot of uh, Douglas Crimp and particularly um, a book called Melancholy and Moralism, um, essays that he wrote through the 80s during the AIDS crisis in American Sean Monica, which many people know, know who he is. Um, and when we were doing, and I was really, really massively affected by um, the essays that, that he wrote, um, and they have always stayed with me, have these, have these, has that book and those essays. Um, and when we were doing the research at the Whitworth, we found General Ideas AIDS wallpaper within the collection. And never have I seen or been affected by a piece of artwork as much as I had done by the AIDS wallpaper by General Idea. And just because, like Rob said, we stand on the shoulders of giants, just because of the power that that piece of artwork has um, and represented during the 80s for all of those hundreds of thousands of, of gay men that, that we lost during the AIDS crisis, during, during, the, um, during the 80s and, and 90s, and, and obviously we still do now with, with regards to um, countries that don't have uh, proper supplies of medication, etc. Um, and so for me, it, it's that act the, the, those pieces of artwork such as this roll of wallpaper that actually a, a piece of insulation art that was massively 
still stays with me and, and is massively important to me um, and has shaped really my whole understanding of what HIV AIDS is and has, has, has stayed with me. So um, perhaps my, yeah, I think um, artwork that has that history behind it, such powerful history is what shapes my, my LGBT experience for sure. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Monica. Yeah, I wasn't sure how I was going to answer this, but now that Dominic has said that, and you know, I was at the first reading of the essay Morning and Militancy that Douglas gave at um, a um, art gallery in, in Manhattan downtown. Um, Monica, you know. you're my hero. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you were my PhD supervisor. <laughs> I can still help you. <laughs> um, I'm here to be your ally. Um, and and but Dominic, you've been guiding so many of my of my responses tonight, and that makes me want to say that um, you know Grand Fury, which was the um, arts uh, group within ACT UP that developed the Silence Equals Death poster, and many other um, activists. Um, iconography and images that um, we now recognize as being connected to um, AIDS activists and the AIDS crisis, but not just Grand Fury. I mean, I like this idea that in some ways it was at that time that I learned, or maybe it wasn't even at that time. Looking back at that time, I've learned that what looks like um, just the stuff that you produce to fight back and uh, challenge the status quo is now being exhibited in galleries and is now being celebrated as art. And a lot of the videos, for example, that we took at ACT UP Actions that were made possible because it was the advent of affordable handheld camcorders that we used in order to protect ourselves um, by making sure that the police didn't have the only footage of the actions and the only stories of the actions is now part of the films that have been made about AIDS and AIDS activism and not just the documentaries, but some feature films as well. So I've learned something about how history works, which is that what looks like you're just trying to make an intervention challenge the status quo, save your friends' lives, and it's pieces of paper and it's um, graphics um, becomes art. And so whether or not you know you're making art, um, sometimes what you're doing to save your own life will become recognized as uh, uh, beautiful. Yeah, that's a really, uh, yeah. I like, I like the way that you phrased that, that was wonderful. Um, Lynn? I don't quite know how to follow that now, because I was going to talk about Top of the Pops. Um, <laughs> talk about Top of the Pops. <laughs> um, I, I, I was going to say that um, was, you know, I, I lived in a, a very small village in the middle of nowhere with a, a very Catholic mum. And um, I was, you know, hungry. Um, for images, for for any art that made me feel like I could be part of a, a different community. And um, I remember really clearly Boy George coming on top of the Pops in, I think, 1982. I have to get the year right, otherwise Andrew Whiteman will be crossing me. Um, and, uh, you know, my... Realising there was other out there, realising that there was a queer world that I was going to be able to discover. And it just gives you gives you hope. I mean, you know, the power of, you know, gay kisses on EastEnders, the lesbian kiss on Brookside, you cannot underestimate the power of those for all the people because we're all quite lucky, aren't we, that we now we live in, you know, Manchester, we live in London, we live in um, metro centres but there are so many people still who don't who live in you know much more isolated places and um you know the Beth Jordash kiss on Brookie we they were going to cuss it for the omnibus and we went and processed it at Channel 4 where I go to work quite often so that they didn't um they didn't cuss it from the omnibus it was still there so I mean yes I, I agree with everything 
I, I had amazing music at my wedding. I've seen extraordinary art on on um, actions. And um, I also love the fact that queer people are soap operas. I feel like I'm the one bringing it down to the... Uh... No, absolutely not. Because I was thinking about um, sort of what, what has shaped shaped me and what has had like, you know, the most sort of impact. Yes, I'd on... love to know that, Hayley. Um, I was actually thinking um, about about queer as folk because um, for me, my my hometown, I didn't meet another gay person until I left home at eighteen and moved to university, and and I watched queer as folk, and you know, there's not great lesbian representation in there. You know, I, I watched it fairly recently, and I was like, oh, um, but I watched that, and I was like, right, oh my god, Manchester, mm. that that. And I, I genuinely, the representation of lesbians up until that point, like I'd, I'd really not seen many and I genuinely didn't know whether I would meet another lesbian. Like, and even if I did, would that person, you know, would I meet someone that would be my life partner? And I was like, if I'm gonna meet a lesbian, I need to move to Manchester. And I did, and here I am. And I now I'm in Manchester and I'm married to a woman and we have a child. Like, so, yeah. Okay, on that note. <laughs> Um, so I think we're about time that we can ask people to submit questions. So I think we might have one here. Yeah, we've got one here for any of the panel. If you want to just add them to the chat below, if they're for uh, anyone specific on the panel, if you just mention that or if they're, they're general, that's fine. So this is for anybody on the panel. Where is the best place to find stories that celebrate LGBTQ plus trailblazers and important historical figures? Um, I have an answer to that, um, one answer. And that is, um, since I've been talking so much about ACT UP, um, the ACT UP Oral History Project is available for free online. And it is a collection of interviews with all the surviving members of ACT UP New York and the transcripts are available in their entirety and at least some of the, their video interviews and some of the videos. And that site now has been revamped so that you get a lot of other material from um, ACT UP actions. And in fact, one of the things I worked on in ACT UP, the uh, first book on women and AIDS um, is now available as a PDF on that site. I really fought to make that available. Um, and anyway, so there's just lots of stuff on that site, but including these interviews. And in some ways as a oral history, it's really queer because you not only get uh, people's personal versions of what they experience in ACT UP, you get competing histories and that's really the queerest thing of all. And from that, you get a kind of world um, and an understanding of what it was like at that time for those people. You've donated um, all the outrage archives for the last 30 years, we've, we've donated that. So you can go and rummage around that um, in London. And again, that is a really fascinating because it's everything from stickers to posters to minutes from meetings. And it, it just, you know, references all these amazing people and actions. That's that's all there. Where is that, Lynn? Is that at the Bishop Gate, is it all? Yes, it is. It's all there. Boxes and boxes of it. Um, I mean, literally, we just, we, you know, we, we tried to catalogue everything and we, we took it all there. Um, yes. Are you, Monica, you're on the ACT UP website as well, aren't you, for some uh, oral histories too, your part played, is that right? You can find my oral history, yes, you yeah. can. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go look. <laughs> Looking now. <laughs> Yeah, and I also did an oral history for the LGBT Foundation, the Let's Talk About Sex Project, um, about um, activists living in Manchester, and that's somewhere available online if you do a search for it. Um, but what's great about, again, oral histories is that you get a whole sort of kaleidoscope of, of um, versions of, of what happened. There's also um, an LGBTQ plus archive group in Manchester, so the Central Library um, host a lot of archive and some in interesting stuff there about sort of some of the um, magazines and publications from like the 60s and 70s and particularly the use of language and how the police are um, uh, presented and yeah it's quite it's quite they're quite interesting like 
history pieces as well, really, in terms of like what was going on at the time. Okay, let's, I think we've got a couple more questions. Um, so we have one here. Um, I really enjoy the work of Russell T. Davis. He's done a huge amount for LGBT representation. However, does it matter that the individuals represented are not always flattering? What does that imply about the group of which they are part? And is it an issue? That's for all the panel to answer. Flattering as in, as in they may be quite problematic. So what's... Um... I guess so. I wonder whether it was off the back of, of me saying that the um, within Queer as Folk, the, represent, the presentation of lesbians mm. wasn't necessarily the most, the most positive. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that not positive is absolutely fine, but it has to be there. So it's not a problem if women are presented in some sort of awkward light or, or even negative light, but there's got to be women in it, right? That's the thing is that, you know, women have been part of every history. And if you don't have women in it, then it's revisionist history. And that's where the problem is. Like, it's the thing, it's obviously a work of genius. <clears throat> there was Jill's backstory. Do you know what I mean? What, what was, do we even exactly know what Jill's sexuality was, how she identified? We don't even particularly know that. Um, and Be More Jill is like, be more amazing, self-sacrificing, just, just be there. So I, I love him, but I do think it's problematic. Yeah. The... <laughs> It is difficult, isn't it? Because from his perspective, he he can sort of tell his story and, and, and that is valid. But there are so many other stories. And you just think if if we had the opportunity to, um, you know, represent all these amazing stories, because I've sort of heard lots of different things about particularly lesbians, because obviously that's sort of the area that I'm drawn to. But, you know, you have to really scratch and find these sort of stories. Then they're not on, you know, Channel 4 uh, you know, primetime drama winning BAFTAs, they're sort of, you have to really eke them out. And I'm sure that's the same for a lot of people within our community thinking, you know, there's an incredible story here, but I don't see it. So. I don't know whether or not it's true, but I, I thought I heard that there was going to be an episode about within It's a Sin, about the women that were part of, um, you know, the, the, the crisis at that time that, that was helping. But for some reason it was cut so what does that say about, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the TV, you know, companies that are prepared to do that, actually? Not let's crowdfund and let's make that episode, Dominic. What's that, sorry? Let's crowdfund and make that episode. Yes, I think yeah, that's the axe. I'll put some money in the hat for that. <laughs> yeah. But that's what I heard. I don't know whether, whether it's true or not. But... I think I, I think might have was... heard something similar. Yeah. I think it was meant to be an eight-part series and Canon mm. 4 said it was too expensive, so it got cut down to five and that was one of the... Casualties. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We've got um, a question for Monica. Um, I've seen a boost in LGBTQ plus young adult literature, but is there a gap for more representation in children's literature? Um, uh, it's not my area of expertise, but um, there's always a gap, I would say. And I think, you know, um, um, Lynn might remember that the uh, one of the slogans for Lesbian Avengers was uh, um, uh, teach about lesbian lives and ask uh, about, teach your children about lesbian lives, right? Our first action in Lesbian Avengers was at an elementary school, the place where people were most afraid of homosexuals coming and, and converting their, their children. And there was this weird scientific statistic at the time that said that 10% of the population was gay or lesbian. That was the scientific statistic. So of course, one of Lesbian Avengers signs was, and chance was, uh, Lynn, you can say it with me, 10% uh, is not enough. Recruit, recruit, recruit. Yeah, we had, we recruit on the back of all the teachers. That's right. And you know, the recruiting of children is always the, you know, anathema of, of what the um, you know evil homosexuals were after. So um, to answer the question about children's literature, what you don't want in children's literature is only 
the nice and friendly and easy representations of, oh, now we have married gay people, um, whereas we used to have, um, you know, no gay people. There has to be, even in children's and YA literature, the um, representation of people who make different life decisions and aren't always palatable or likable. Yes, and um, my friend Topsy Redford is doing this brilliant project um, where the drag queens go into libraries and read read fairy stories to little kids, and they've got some really brilliant episodes now in that in that range, you know. So he dresses as a princess and goes in and reads all these queer fairy stories to six and seven year olds. I mean, how brilliant is that? Uh, it's amazing. Amazing. Um, okay, another question. Thank you to the panel for a fascinating discussion. You ranged far and wide across the cultural landscape. Uh, who or what is your favourite LGBT representation and why? Rob, do you want to answer this first? Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of characters really that um, would be uh, amazing. Um, I mean, I, I probably think that I don't know if I'm in my favorite but actually the, the thing that goes in my head is Colin from EastEnders um, from the 80s because I think that personally that was a time where you know I was uh, I would have been about 12 um, I wasn't I was questioning my sexuality what you know and I was I was I lived in a town which um, you know, like you were saying before, actually, I didn't, you know, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know any LGBTQ plus people until I got, went, got to university. So, so it was, it was quite a difficult time in my life, really. And I suppose just that thing about that, you know, the, 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 the kiss on the TV um, was powerful because it was the first time, you know, oh, two, two men can kiss. It was the first time I'd kind of seen that. But also on a on a negative way, I remember the um, the newspaper headlines and there was a backlash from that. Um, and you know th those newspaper headlines don't encourage you to come out, don't encourage you to kind of think about your sexuality and then come out the closet further down the line. So I think for me personally, that that's kind of been a that was a powerful one at that moment in time. Dominic, how about you? Your favourite LGBT representation. Um, I'm going to agree with you, Hayley Jane, in that I started to come to Manchester um, as a, a, a teen off of the back of watching Queer as Folk. Um, and my first kiss with a boy was when I was 17, when I'd come over to a Pride on the train from Leeds. Um, and that was like, like you were saying, it was massively uh, influential on, on my life as well, watching that with a, you know, um, Jess Dolan talks about uh, watching Derek Jarman, you know, with his finger on the television button in case his parents come in. But that's exactly what it was like for us watching Queer as Folk as kids with our finger on the television button ready to turn it off in case anybody came in. It was massively influential for me, um, for, for LGBT representation. And I still think about it now. And, you know, uh, it's a sin, it's just a, another, you know, uh, episode of that really for me. But yeah. Um, Queer as fuck, I think, is is as as stayed with me, yeah, for for all these years. Monica. Well, I guess I'll out myself as someone who really loves opera, and um, I've actually written a little bit about opera, even though I have no right to. I have no expertise in musicology or in that discipline, but. What I love about opera, or one of the things I love about opera is something that Dominic mentioned, which is queering. You know, it's not necessarily queer in itself, but if you know anything about the trouser role, you know, the, the suspension of disbelief where there's a soprano singing a man's role and is dressed as a man, is acting like a man and often making love to a woman because we're all supposed to believe that she's really a man, but still singing in this very high soprano or mezzo-soprano voice. Um, so I find opera to be queer. I'm also perfectly willing to queer it because it's really uh, uh, amenable to it. And I just find it to be so, uh, well, passionate. And I suppose that's uh, a queer feeling. I love that phrase, to, to queer it. I like it. Uh, Lynn, 
How about clearing, you? Clearing the pitch. Um, well, I was, I was just thinking that I used to um, be convinced that when I was little, I read um, Enid Blyton, that um, all the Mallory Towers girls were all in love with each other. At least they, they were in my version anyway. Daryl, Daryl was definitely a lesbian. Um, she used to do cold water swimming and rub, her, rub herself down vigorously with towels after she'd, she'd, she'd been swimming. But um, I was just thinking it's quite interesting. So many muscle T. Davis was responsible for all the <laughs> just moving, moving to Manchester. And I mean, I suppose I'm a bit older. So my thing was just getting to London. It was just like any little bits of stuff I'd seen. I think I thought I've got to get to London because that's where it's all going to happen. I mean, feminist kind of cabaret was really important to me. Just people using humour as well to discuss, you know, groups like, um, you know, Spare Tide, Rubber Jellies, those really kind of early 80s when people were using humour to discuss these really important key issues. Um, I think that had a massive impact. I was running, uh, I was at um, University of Liverpool and we had a budget and we just used to bring all the feminist, you know, kind of cabaret troops there. And that was just, that had a real impact on me and a lot of people, I think. And what about you, Hayley? Um, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't know. I was just thinking then like hearing some of the sort of experiences that some of you have had, like having lived through certain things. I'm like, God, I wish I, I like, you know, Will, will I be part of something that will be part of sort of LGBTQ history? I don't know. Like, it's it's a really interesting, like, like thought to have lived through something. I don't even that, know if that even makes any sense, to be honest. But do you know what I mean? Um, uh, by the way, if anybody wants to add another question, uh, you can do. We might have time for another one. We have got one coming up. I'll... Uh, oh, I, I love that book as well, Aidan. I love it. So one of my favourite books, forgive my pronunciation of the name, um, is A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara, uh, who received some backlash for producing a queer story as a woman who is presumed to be heterosexual. I'm interested to know the panel's view on queer stories by straight people. Anyone want to take this one first? Well, I don't really believe in straight people. So I think everyone should have a go. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think I think that's a brilliant answer. I, I, uh, I, I'm tempted to say it depends how good the story is. You know, it depends how good the writing is. Uh, part, part of me feels that, you know, if, if there's people there that are kind of helping to get the story out, then brilliant. Um, I mean, obviously, there's there's power in authenticity of the story and the voice, um, but yeah, I think it I think it depends upon um, you know we live in a world, don't we, where we've got different we we, we want represent we want strong representation from queer people, mm -hmm. but I think also we want to make sure that lots of different stories get out there and get read. Yes, and I think it's really problematic if you start putting divides in because you know. Does that mean that as a queer woman, I couldn't write a book that had a straight character in it? Do you know what I mean? I think that's really tricky. Authenticity is great, but I think we should just all go with Monica's comment anyway. Nobody's nobody's hundred percent straight. Nobody. But I think allyship is really important as well for you know for for the community, and if it comes from I think a place of you know a, a good place that this story is written from, you know, for that representation, then it's. Is massively important, I think. I was really shocked to find out that comment by my name was written by a, a, a straight a straight man. I was really shocked by that because I was, I thought it was that was great. <laughs> the peach was a little far fetched, but I thought the rest of it was really great. But I was I was shocked to find out that it was written by a straight man. But good on him. Yeah, why not? Allyship is important. Uh, we've got a couple more questions that I, hopefully we might be able to, to squeeze in the last five minutes. So I'll read these as quickly as I can. Uh, loving everyone's contributions. On the back of Monica's statement about opera, what non-traditional queer genres, cultures, media are most ripe for the queering, in your opinion? Where in culture do you still feel queer representation is most lacking? And uh, anyone can hop in on that one. 
Anyone got any thoughts? I mean, the thing in terms of represent, I, I think there's lots of areas where it's lacking in terms of representation. The thing that immediately came to mind was sport. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Man City fan. So as soon as I say that in Manchester, mm. I've kind of half the, half the, half the audience is with me and the other half aren't. But as a Man City fan, um, I'm a season ticket holder. And actually, you know, there's an awful lot more that uh, uh, certainly football clubs could be doing uh, around representation, around inclusion. Um, not actually, not just around queer identity, but other, other, other forms as well. And bizarrely, musical theatre is such, such, in a way, a kind of um, queer art form, but there's not enough queer stories told in that still, definitely. I think that, you know, I think you can pick out lesbian gay bits of the stories. Oh, you know, there's, you know, there's Captain Cabaret, he's bisexual. You know, you're looking for them. You, mm. I think we need more new musicals with more queer characters. Yeah, let's crowdfund that. Yeah. yeah, I'd never never picked up on that before, actually, but that's really true. <laughs> yeah, And also some really bad stereotypes in musicals as well. Uh, Miss Saigon, for example, you know, there's some really bad stereotypes of gay men in Miss Saigon. I was quite shocked, actually, when I went to uh, go see. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, <laughs> that's really bad. So, yeah, queer fund to rewrite some musicals as well, please. Fantastic. Are you, uh, um, Rob, are you uh, part of the uh, Queer Supporters Club for Manchester City? I'm just saying because I've got my Leeds, my Leeds scar, you know. With oh, the... yeah. No, I am, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I am. Yeah, nice. I mean, one of the problems is that, um, you know, art once queered doesn't stay queer. So it's ongoing, endless work to uh, make sure that, uh, yes, on one hand, that representation is there, but representation is only one part of it. And the other is disruption, right? So that it's not, we're not uh, settled. We're not like, okay, we, you know, we've done that now. That's now queer. So we have to re-queer. Re and, yeah. also, and also disrupt the queer. So um, two weekends ago, I was part of a group that uh, engaged in uh, minutes a minute of violence for Derek Jarman at the protest exhibition. And if you look that up, you might be able to find the video of us um, uh, reading out for a minute something that we brought with us and uh, a group of us in a circle each read our own material so that there was a cacophony for a minute. Um, it was in opposition to the minute silence that opened the Jarman exhibition. And it was picked up by uh, Maria Bolshaw, who used to be the director at Manchester Art Gallery, is now director of the Tate, and showed our video at one of her Slade professorship lectures at Cambridge. Uh, so that was kind of activism. We weren't protesting the uh, exhibition, of course, um, but we were uh, doing a old fashioned zap in the spirit mm, of mm. protest. What did uh, what was Maria's point by showing that video? Was she saying, "Look at these people"? I think that well, the talk was about ethics, activism, and the oh. museum, and how museum museums sometimes have to deal with activism that isn't always in their favor, and sometimes mm. is. But mm. how to embrace it? So it was really nice, actually, that she wanted to show it. Mm -hmm. I know that Derek Jarman is one of her favorite artists. Yeah, so. that's right. She yeah. said that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was great fun, and there was a great video made out of it. I wish I could show it now, but if you go look it up, you might be able to find it. You have to come to the Whitworth and do that, Monica, with your group. <laughs> Anytime, Dom. <laughs> oh, I think we might have lost. Um... Oh. oh, she's back. You're back. You're back. You're back. Oh, I, I, I panicked then. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, something's gone wrong with my internet, but hopefully it's okay. Uh, just, I don't know whether any of the uh, the sort of the the events team could just let me know if we've got time for the last question or whether I need to wrap it up because I know we are at seven now. Anyone let me know? We've got time. Thanks. Great. Right. Last question, and then we will wrap it up. So, did the panel have any experience of queer art or queer histories as young people in school? In my experience, there was very little or none, and I really had to do the work myself rather than it being part of the curriculum. And this made me feel like I didn't have a place in the history we learned about. How can we increase this for young people going forward? That's a really interesting question to end on. 
I'll start that if that's all right. Yeah. So I mean, I'm yeah. in Section 28 uh, in this country, which didn't uh, allow the promotion of homosexuality um, within uh, museums and galleries. There was uh, hardly any promotion of, of, of uh, queer artists in, in, in that respects. Um, so you had to you had to look for it if you were going to find it. And I, I didn't I didn't understand myself. I didn't understand my sexuality, so I didn't understand what I was looking for anyway in the first place to be able to find it. Um, but I feel that with the work that Imogen and myself are doing at the Whitworth, then there is a part of that that we're, we're hoping to be. We have lots of school groups that come into the gallery that use the gallery. And at the moment, uh, with our project Undefining Queer, um, we're developing a glossary of LGBTQ plus terms to be able to use within the gallery and to be able to use within the search collections. But at the moment, in one of the spaces upstairs, we've got 20 words that have been developed by our participants, queer words, such as the gays, um, lesbian, um, hate crime as a verb, all those kind of things. And we're getting six and seven year olds in that space giggling at the word, you know, the term the gays or what have you. But just because like, it's, it's that they're being confronted with words that they wouldn't ordinarily be, you know, come into contact with or visual artworks that they wouldn't ordinarily come into contact with. So, I've, yeah, things like that, I think we're, we're trying to do to be able to, you know, bring art history and queer art history to a, to a bigger audience and to the schools definitely that are coming into the Whitworth at the minute we're doing that as well. But yeah, there was, I didn't have anything under Section 28. I had to, I had to look for it. And I didn't know what I was to look for. I mean, my short answer is no, I had none. Um, but I do have much higher hopes from what I've seen putting my own kids through school. It's the teachers. It's the, mm. you know, it's the brave teachers who are now out and who are doing some amazing work with much better resources than we're ever around. Um, so I have, I had nothing, but I have hopes for the future. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. If, if nothing, sort of, you know, like like you're saying, Dominic, about the work that that you're involved with, it's 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 really hopeful, isn't it, for for the future? Mm. And when we look at what you know, a lot of us didn't have, and what the future have, then hopefully, I think it's like like uh, like Lynn said, it's that educating teachers to be able to deal with it. So one of my colleagues was in that space, and the teacher didn't quite know how to have that conversation with the children. And, you know, we're in, I think, quite a, a, a liberal, well, in my bubble, it's quite liberal, but clearly in other circles and other people's circles, it isn't that liberal. And actually, there, there's still like challenges to, to teachers, to, you know, to the education system, to be able to work with them, to be able to educate children on terms like the gays. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's, yeah, it's, it's strange, isn't it? Mm. Okay. I mean, my, my definitely no zero zilch, you know, in terms of like when I went to school. I think I think I could completely disagree with what Lynn and Dominic were saying about, you know, a lot of it depends on the teachers. And I think you, we are starting to see schools do more stuff, certainly around, you know, LGBT history month. Um, we've had we have examples at work where actually we have you know we have school children that will write to us to say they've they've done a particular lesson or maybe they've done stuff around um, HIV or History Month. I think there's a lot more work to be done though in terms of the curriculum generally, and actually how you know how how as a, how as a sector or as a community we influence that more um, and and see. Um, you know, members of our community in the curriculum and role models, and but but I think the curriculum as well is. I think LGBTQ plus representation and influence in the curriculum also links to the, you know, some of the um, getting some of the dust off the curriculum. It's uh, some of our education system is still based upon, you know, quite a few years ago really, and I think there's a there's a big debate to have about what we should or shouldn't be sort of teaching kids yeah uh thank you very much we've we've overrun by um uh, by about five minutes but it's because you've all been so absolutely wonderful a really uh fascinating panel discussion there so thank you so much and thank you everyone for for coming along um I'd just like to say um all of you here you can all make a difference if you are an alumni of the university 
um, we welcome volunteers from all diverse backgrounds to help students and other alumni. Um, if you're interested in that, you can find out through our e-newsletter if you're subscribed and from your.manchester.ac.uk. Um, if you're a member of university staff or a student, there's social and support networks like the All Out uh, Network and the LGBTQ plus Student Society, where you can learn more about the work that we do and the role of allyship here at the university. Um, I'd like to say a very big thanks to our colleagues from the LGBT Foundation, which is a nationally significant charity firmly rooted in our local communities uh, of Greater Manchester and provides a wide range of excellent services. Um, and this is going to be turned into a podcast for your Manchester stories. It should be available from the 22nd of February for you to listen to again. And you can share with all your friends and networks and all that. And you can also hear from other Manchester alumni. There's some great stories from uh, other Manchester alumni here uh, on there. And you will also find last year's LGBT History Month uh, event as a podcast on there as well. And it is available on all podcasts podcast platforms spotify apple Podcasts, and all that um so uh thank you very much uh to, to our wonderful panel you've been absolutely fantastic um and thank you um to everyone for coming um stay safe and well thank you very much